0: We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Start reading in verse number 1. Now concerning things offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, There is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Father God, thank you for this passage. deep, difficult passage. I pray you'd guide us now and help us as we tear into it. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you'd help me to say those things I ought to and not say things I shouldn't. I pray today I'd be clear and accurate and practical. And I pray, Lord, that this would be meaningful. Lord, I I know that there are some who may be, uh, uh, they may struggle to follow this, Lord, because it, it may bother them. And I pray today that you'll just help us all right now to put every preconception out of our mind, every uh, bias out of our mind, and just listen to the word of God. And I pray, Father, you speak. Speak through me. Speak to us all. Be our teachers today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty. And the pursuit of happiness. You recognize those words? Just recently we celebrated our Independence Day here in the United States. And some of you may have taken the time, I always think it's a good idea, you may have taken the time to read through the Declaration of Independence as part of that. And that's just a little blurb from the Declaration of Independence. It's good for us to remember the ideals upon which our nation was founded, especially in this day when so many of them are being ripped out from under us. The one thing that strikes you when you read the Declaration of Independence is the proliferation of that word rights. It's all through there. I mean, it was mentioned there are unalienable rights. And I think I counted three or four more times down through the rest of the text where the word rights appears. Since America was founded, we have lived with this idea that we have rights. It's 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 everywhere. The women's suffrage movement way back brought the rights of women to the forefront. The civil rights movement of the 60s brought the rights of uh, oppressed minorities to the forefront. And, uh, the fact is, I want my rights has become kind of a byword in America. I have rights has been something that is common. And even if we don't know necessarily where we get that thinking and I think it probably goes back to the Declaration of Independence. Even if we don't know that, it's, it's certainly a common belief amongst Americans. Is it not? We have rights. Interestingly, that same thinking has crept into the church. And I would suggest, I would suggest that that's a shame. That's a shame. We don't usually use the word rights in church. We usually use a different word. We usually use the word liberty or a phrase like Christian liberty. Some some Christians will toss out the phrase I have liberty and that's Christianese for I have my rights. It's basically saying the exact same thing. And the truth is Paul's words here to the to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 teach us exactly the opposite of that. They teach us that uh, that, that I want my rights is not the way the believers ought to be. That's not that's not the refrain that we ought to be putting forth. This passage teaches that my rights are secondary to my brother's rights and my sister's rights. My personal liberty must take a backseat to the evangelism, the discipleship, and the growth of others. Now how many of you are offended? Some of you probably are. Are you offended, Phil? Okay, I knew I couldn't offend Phil. But I wanna, I wanna ask you this morning that even if that bothers you, I want you to just bear with me a little bit. Will you promise me that you'll listen to the end of this? Because When we get to the end of this, I think you'll find out, I think you'll have to agree, this is not my opinion. I'm just sharing with you what the Apostle Paul teaches here. I hope that you will not uh, consider me an enemy just because I tell you the truth here this morning. Because this is the truth. I have my rights ought not to be the rallying cry of believers. I think you'll agree that the Bible teaches our rights are secondary to our brothers' rights. So, let's notice, first of all, the issue that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. We started talking about this about two weeks ago, and you remember that we're talking about the issue of meat offered to idols. When we talked about it two weeks ago, we really didn't even touch on that, we just went off on the concept of idols themselves. And we asked ourselves, is idolatry even a problem that exists today? And, of course, we came up with the answer that, of course it is. We just have different idols with different names today, but idolatry is just as much a problem. And I would suggest that the, the issue of meat offered to idols, even though we do not go into the marketplace and find any place, any shelf, we have a, a meat guy back there. Do you have any place, uh, where do you work, Acme? Yeah. You got a place at Acme where they've got a shelf that says meat offered to idols on it? Yeah. yeah you, you can't find that anywhere. We don't have that issue. But we do have the same issue, just with different names and different uh, specifics today. Here is how one source described the problem that existed in Corinth. Quote, everyday shopping presented problems to first century Christians. Meat sold in a Gentile market in Corinth could have been first used as sacrificial meat in a heathen temple. Part would have been burned on an altar, part eaten at a solemn meal in the temple, and then the remainder sold in the market for home consumption. Some who had once believed in the gods to whom these sacrificial offerings were made now found themselves uncomfortable eating meat offered in this way because they felt it to be a denial of their Christian faith and the knowledge that there is only one true God, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Others, however, recognized that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that what might have happened in a heathen temple before the meat was put on sale was a matter of indifference. Again, we don't face that exact issue today, but we face many similar areas of conflict, don't we? There are a myriad of situations where good Christians differ in their understanding of the rightness or wrongness of the thing, where some say we cannot in good conscience do this, and others say it's perfectly okay. I don't think we need to make a list. I think most of you already have a list in your brain, but the issue is still there. These are gray areas. Meat offered to idols. And Paul here, I think, gives some very thought provoking and interesting instruction on how to sort this stuff out. How to differentiate between I want my rights and the concerns of others. And I think once we've worked through his arguments, we'll come away. We'll come away with this thought. My rights are secondary to my brother's rights. My personal liberty must take a back seat to the evangelism and discipleship. And growth of others. Now, here's how we're going to organize this. We're going to kind of go down through chapter 8 here and we're going to look at four different things. And we're going to base it on four words. And you might want to circle four different words in your Bible this morning. The first one is in verse number one, it's the word no. No. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. You might want to circle that word. The second one is in verse number seven, it's the word however. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. The third is in verse number 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. And finally the fourth is in verse number 13, the word therefore. Therefore. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat. First of all, the word no. No in verse number 1. Once again here Paul is answering a question, one of the questions that they had put to him. And we don't know exactly what the question was, but I think we can kind of assume from the way he responds to them how they asked the question. I think they must have asked the question something like this. Now, now, Paul, of course we know, don't we, that there is no problem with eating meat offered to idols. We know that, right? I think that must be the way that they put forth the question. And, the, and, and Paul, he affirmed that. He, he basically said, yeah, you're right. We do know that. And as a matter of fact, in this passage, he talks about several different things that we know in verses 1 down through verse number 6. He said in verse number 4 that we know, for example, that idols are nothing in the world. There is only one God. And that's a glorious thing. We know that, don't we? Idols are nothing in the world. There's no reason to get concerned about false gods. You know, some Christians are very, very concerned about the rise of Islam. Some Christians actually worry about that. As if. Allah was actually a God. As if there was anything to be concerned about there. A false God is a false God. There's nothing to be concerned about. They are nothing in the world. I love the way Paul says it. He couldn't have said it in any more uh, denigrating way. Idols are nothing in the world. When we were in Israel, we went to a place called the Temple Institute. Never been there before. It's somewhat interesting. The Temple Institute is an organization that's dedicated to the rebuilding of the third temple. And they're actually working on gathering together the supplies. They've they've recreated all of the furniture for the temple. They've recreated all the robes. They've identified people, and I don't know how they've done this. They've identified people who are supposedly of the priestly class, of the lineage, of you know, the priesthood. And they've created all their garments for them and all this kind of stuff. When you go to the uh, western wall, there's a huge menorah there. A huge golden candlestick has 95 pounds of gold in it. And they have reconstructed that. It is sitting there waiting to go in the third temple when it is built. Well, while we were listening to this presentation, this young girl was telling us about all these things. And she mentioned that in one of the things that they had been able to accomplish was they had been able to open this tunnel along the western wall through which we got to walk. Very interesting. And she said, now, we had to make a concession for that. She said, in order for the Jews to get the opportunity to open that tunnel... The Arabs had to be granted the concession that they could dig and research and look around underneath of the Temple Mount. And somebody in the audience spoke up and says, well, wait a minute now. Aren't you at all concerned that they might find something under there? For example, most of us believe that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. What if? These people who want to wipe the Jewish nation off the face of the earth, who want to erase every vestige of history that would ever point out that they have a claim to that mount. What if they found that under there? aren't you the slightest bit concerned that they would just destroy it? And she said, well, yeah, that's a concern. But then, we have a God who is bigger than them, don't we? And I thought, absolutely, it matters not, these other gods. Idols are... Nothing. Paul says we know that he says in verse number six and verse number six is a wonderful verse. We could spend the whole day on verse number six. Verse number six. Yet for us, there is one God, the father of whom are all things and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live. He says we know that we are of God in verse number six. The psalmist said, make it joyful, shout to the Lord, all you lands, serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We are of God. He made us. We are of God. Paul said, we know that he said we we are for God. Also in verse number six, we are for him. And by the way, that phrase alone pretty much dismantles the I have my rights argument. I think we're not for us. We're for him. When we get to the end of chapter 10, we're going to see that the apostle Paul here continues this argument through chapters 8, 9, and 10. When we get to the very end of chapter 10, his, one of his summation statements is going to be this, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are for God. He said, we know that. He said in verse number 6, we are through Christ. We know that. He is the agent of our creation. Colossians said for by him all things were created that are in heaven that are on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created through him and for him. We know that we are through Christ and we exist in Christ he says also in verse number six. I encourage you to look at that particular part especially if you're holding a King James or a New King James Bible. The very last part of verse six says through whom are all things and through whom we live. Do you notice that the word live is in italics there? I'm always interested in that kind of stuff. In the King James Bible, or the New King James Bible at least, their their uh, uh, their methodology is that whenever they put something in italics like that, what that basically means is that the word, that exact word, does not exist in the Greek. It's implied. It's inserted there to try to make the meaning more clear. But what the Greek actually says here is interesting. What the Greek actually says is something like this. Through whom all things... And we through him. Or perhaps through whom all and through whom we. It's not just that we live through him. It's everything about us is through him. Through whom all and through whom we. Paul says we, we exist, everything about us is in Christ. And so, he mentions all these things, and basically what he's saying is, you're right. There are some things that we know. You're correct. And, and and we even know what you're saying is true. Technically, yes, you're right. There is nothing wrong with eating meat offered to idols because idols are nothing in the world. We know these things. But even while he's affirming the validity of their argument, he is knocking their knees right out from under them. And he is knocking the wind right out of their sails. Because he reminds them here that no matter how much they think they know, you're right, you guys know this, you're right, we know it. But no matter how much they know, they really don't know much of anything. Verse number two, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. A recurrent theme in the book of 1 Corinthians, by the way, their continuous uh, self-congratulatory spirit, their continuous uh, you know, kind of pride problem that we see surface every once in a while here. And Paul has to just, everyone's so I'll reach out and just whack that right off. And he does that here as well. And you know, we ought to, we ought to listen to that as well. Something we all need to guard against every day. It doesn't matter how much we think we know. We're not there yet. Who in the world knows all that there is yet to know about God? No matter how much mature we might think we are in the faith, no matter how gifted we might think we are, we're nowhere near the end of the journey yet. And there's plenty more for us to learn. I love the example of Paul. And I know I share it more times than I probably should. You know, in uh, homiletics class, we were told not to use the same illustrations over and over. And I know I've used this one many times. But you know, the Apostle Paul kept learning right up until the day they whacked his head off. Right up until the day. Second Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse number 9. Wonderful, wonderful passage of scripture. He tells Timothy to come to him. He knows that his time is up. He's about ready to, uh, uh, to to be martyred. And he says, when you come, bring the books and especially the parchments I love that. Still learning right up to the end. <laughs> Paul knew from personal experience that even when he thought he knew, he didn't yet know. We went to Israel with a fellow by the name of Charles Whitfield. Charles Whitfield was one of my teachers in, in Bible college. Charles Whitfield is, a, is probably the guy that I would credit the most with my love for the Bible. I loved the Bible before I went to Bible college. But he gave me a love for expository preaching. He gave me a love for digging deeper into the Word. I remember one time I was sitting in Dr. Whitfield's office at his church. I don't remember why I was there. I think it was probably the only time I was ever there. But I was sitting in his office at his church. And behind his desk, as I recall, there was a bunch of shelves, and on those shelves were a whole bunch of black binders, black notebooks, three-ring binders. And I said something like, are those your sermons? And he said, well, yeah. I said, man, there's a lot of sermons there. And, of course, that was 30 years ago. He's been preaching for 30 years since. There's probably a whole room of them now. But he said, yeah, someday maybe I'll learn how. You know, if that had been any other man, I would have thought, well, you know, over pious. I would have thought he's just, he's just trying to act overly pious and humble. But no, I believe he meant it. I've known him long enough to believe that he really meant that. You see, the knowledge of God is always partial. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12 says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. He says, yes, you guys are right. This knowledge thing is good. You know this is true. But the issue is not knowledge. The issue has nothing to do with knowing. And then he says, it has everything to do with loving. Look at verse 3. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. It's not about knowing. It's about loving. Loving is the identifying characteristic of the believer, not knowledge. John chapter 13 and verse 35 says, by this we all, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Remember the little chorus we used to sing in Sunday school? They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. It has rightly been said people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so that first word, no, Paul is saying to them here this morning, you're right. We know there's nothing wrong with meat offered to idols. We know that. But knowing is not the issue. And loving is. He says some other things here. He says we know that we all have knowledge. He says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge makes arrogant. And we've known plenty of puffed-headed people, haven't we, that had a lot of knowledge and were just arrogant as a result. He said it's love that builds up. And so it's not a head issue, it's a heart issue. That's the first thing we learn from that word, no. Second word is in verse number 7. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Here Paul is going to explain the problem with their knowledge. He's going to explain why it's not a head issue but a heart issue. He's going to explain why this matter of loving others rather than simply exercising our own rights. Why this matter of making my rights uh, secondary to the rights of others. Is important. He's going to explain why personal liberty must take a back seat to evangelism and discipleship and growth of others. And right there it is. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. What knowledge, Paul? Why, the knowledge that there's nothing wrong with eating meat off to idols. That knowledge. There's not everybody that understands that. Some had not come to that level of maturity and understanding in their walk with God. Some had been saved out of idol worship. Matter of fact, probably a lot of them. Idol worship was a real problem. Some had spent years of their lives in these very temples. Some had offered meat to idols in these very temples. And as a result, the whole thing grieved them. He said they had a weak conscience as a result. And that's an interesting thought, that word weak. One man said a weak conscience is one that cannot come to a decision on an issue where an individual is uncertain of the rightness of his or her actions. Paul talked about the same thing in Romans. Here's what he said. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. He also said if your brother is grieved because of your food you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Romans chapter 14 and verse 15. So if I'm uncertain whether a thing is honoring to God I should not do it. That's what he's saying. For to do such would be sin, according to Romans 14. Something that is perfectly acceptable to the person who understands it as such is perfectly unacceptable to the one who does not. That's what he's saying. So that word, however, it reminds us we're not all on the same level in our walk with God. Right? And look around this church. Don't Don't we see that in our own personal experience? Do we not have some, even in our own family here, who are mature in the faith, who have been saved for many years and have grown and, 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 and would have no trouble with issues like this. And do we not have some here who have uh, just recently come to know the Lord? Babes in Christ. All different levels of maturity. And not everybody is mature enough to handle an issue like this one that they felt that they dealt with on this particular day. Not everybody's mature. And that should not be a source of pride to those who think they are, because some do but it ought to rather be a motivation to love and compassion and discipling toward them. So, we know, however, third word is in verse number nine, beware. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Now, I can't think of any other way to interpret that verse than a warning. Can you? Beware. That's a warning. It's a warning. In Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, a soothsayer walked up to Julius Caesar one time and said, beware the Ides of March. Caesar should have listened to the warning, but he didn't, and he walked into the Senate and was stabbed to death. Beware is a warning. Paul is saying here, beware that the exercise of your rights, that is your liberty in Christ, doesn't cause a weaker Christian to stumble, to trip and fall. That's a warning. Beware. He says, beware that somebody doesn't see you doing something they think is sin, and therefore to them it is sin, and then sin by doing that which they think is now okay. Don't do that. Beware. Verse number 12 is a stark warning when it says that when we insist on our rights... And overlook the scruples of our weaker brothers and sisters, we actually sin against Christ Himself. This is this is a warning. Verse twelve is a reminder that what we do to others, we do to Jesus. Did you see that? When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Paul had heard that same thing on the Damascus road. Remember that he'd been uh, he'd been knocked flat on his back by the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And then uh, he looked up and he heard Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. See, Paul had been tearing all over the countryside persecuting Christians. He thought he was persecuting Christians. He was on the road to Damascus with letters of intent to try and throw much of them in prison. Christians. But Jesus said, you're not persecuting Christians. You're persecuting me. That which we do to others. We do to Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. Assuredly I say to you. inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren. You did it to me. So beware. So three words so far. No. However. Beware. One last one. Verse number 13. The word therefore. Therefore. If food makes my brother stumble. I will never again eat meat. Lest I make my brother stumble. Here's Paul's summation. He's going to continue to talk about this topic through chapter 9 and chapter 10. In chapter 9, he's going to use himself as an example. In chapter 10, he's going to bring some Old Testament examples to to bear on the issue. And then when we get to the end of chapter 10, he's going to finalize it all at the end of that chapter. But this verse right here summarizes everything he's going to say in the next two chapters. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. If it might cause somebody to stumble, I simply will not do it. And that was what he applied to the matter of meat offered to idols, but it applies to any of these gray areas, does it not? It applies to any of these issues where we might scream, I want my rights, where we might scream, I have liberty, but it might cause somebody else to stumble. It applies to all those things. Some of us might want to cry out, I have my rights. But Paul would say, no, you have a responsibility to love others as Christ loved and loves One man said Christian behavior is not based upon rights, but upon duties. Turn with me to the very last part of chapter 10, and I'll just read how he closes out this argument. We'll touch on this again in a few weeks, but let's just read it now. Chapter 10, jump down to verse number 23 and see how he closes it all out. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify or build up. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved." Paul, is it okay to eat meat offered to idols? That was the question. And his answer, well, we know that it is technically okay because there is simply no such thing as another god. They are nothing in this world. They are false. They are non-existent. But that's not really the issue we should be concerned with. How does it affect others? Will it confuse them? Will it cause them to stumble? In their early walk with Christ. What impact will it have on reaching the lost. On winning others to Jesus Christ. What impact on the discipleship. Of young believers. Don't allow anything to hinder those things Paul said. Because that would take something that's sinless. The eating of meat offered to idols. And turn it into something sinful. The hurting of a brother or sister. Don't do it Paul said. If there is a danger of that. Then no. It's not okay to eat meat offered to idols. Now this is meaty stuff, wouldn't you say? That was a pun. Paul, you should have liked that one. This is meaty stuff. Some of you might find it hard to swallow. But let me just share a couple of real quick thoughts that might make it a little bit more palatable. And one of them is this. There's no sacrifice here. They will not be rewarded a gazillion times over there. This is not a cost to us. Remember the words of Jim Elliot, the the missionary who was martyred, who wrote in his diary one day, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is not a sacrifice. We don't look at it as a sacrifice to, to, to give up our rights for the benefit of others. Because it's something that we're going to be rewarded for when we get to Glory. Jesus answered and said in Mark chapter 10, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. There's no sacrifice here. They won't be rewarded there. That's one thing that ought to make it a little bit more palatable. And another one is this. The need to submit our rights our liberties to the scruples of others is only for a little while. It's not forever. It's not forever. I would remind you, (laughs) brothers and sisters, that this is not the time to rest. This is the time to serve. The time to rest is yet future. Too many American Christians have that backwards. Too many American Christians think this is the time to play, and they want all of their benefit here. And they're going to get to heaven someday. They're going to find out they frittered it all the way down here. No. The time for reward. The time for rest. Is there one of my favorite verses? Hebrews chapter 4 verse number 9. What's it say, Don? Hebrews chapter 4 verse number 9. says, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. You give up your rights here, but not there. You may be the one serving here, but oh, the joy when you get there. There's going to be a rest. This has been a ferocious week. In our church for a lot of people. For some reason. A lot of different things converged on the schedule. At the same time here. For this particular week. We have vacation Bible school. That is starting this week. We just finished a construction project. We have caregivers meals. Softball. Father son outing. Bible studies. Campfire fellowships. And I'm sure other things. That I'm forgetting. And I know some. Of our faithful folks are tired. And I know some may even be ready to throw in the towel there's always those few there's always those few who do the lion's share of the work in a church but to them I would say don't toss it in yet don't toss it in yet hold on and work just a little bit longer because the reward is going to be great and besides that rest is coming you know what? We have nothing on our calendar after VBS. Nothing of any, uh, any size in July. And all of August is empty. And that's by design. So that those who have worked so hard will have a period of rest. And you know, that's just what it's going to be like. There remaineth therefore a rest. We serve here. We rest there. Those faithful brothers and sisters who have worked themselves silly these past few weeks. They can rest. During those times off, knowing they gave their best knowing they served to the utmost when God and his church needed them and knowing they subordinated their rights to the needs of others and thus served and glorified the Savior. My son Joshua used to play football for Mount Union College and he used to come home from a game once in a while and he would say dad we left it all on the field today. Some of you have left it all on the field recently. And some of you will no doubt leave it all on the field this coming week in Vacation Bible School. Such is what defines a champion. And such is what reaches the lost for Christ. Such is what builds the kingdom. And such is what glorifies our Lord. So when we get to heaven, we're never again going to have to subordinate our rights to anybody else. We're not going to have to sacrifice our rights for the sake of others. We're going to receive in full the reward for faithful service. But until then... Until then, it's not about our rights. It's about loving and serving our brothers and sisters. And oh, the reward. The magnificent, eternal, heavenly reward. The well-done, thou good and faithful servant reward that we will receive. If we just hold out until the end.